you to take your Bibles and uh, turn to 1 Peter. I believe it's page 1201 in the Bibles there in the seats that you might uh, follow along this morning. And uh, we come this morning having um, spent some time together learning from the Bible and from Peter in particular, uh, the real unique thing about being a Christian and a real Christian and what that really means, and uh, that a Christian is a person who's not just born physically, but a person who is actually born spiritually. Uh, Everything that's born physically uh, starts with a perishable seed, the Bible says. Everything that's born physical uh, perishes. It's temporary, including our bodies. But when we're born spiritually, we're born of imperishable seed. And there's a side of us, a part of us, a spiritual part to our being uh, that uh, becomes eternal. It's born of imperishable seed. It'll never perish. It's given eternal life. And then we saw how this spiritual side of our life is fed and nurtured by the uh, living Word of God, by the God-breathed words of Scripture. And ultimately, uh, the Word of God uh, ultimately became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that in the past, God spoke in a lot of different ways to people, but in these last days... The days between the first and second coming of Christ, God has spoken to us by his son. And so the ultimate word of God coming from uh, the person of Jesus Christ. And so we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, you know, verses um, 2 and 3, that you and I as Christians now are like newborn babies who crave the pure spiritual milk of the word of God so that we can grow up, so that we can have all that God wants to give us. And so we crave this pure spiritual milk so that we can grow up in our salvation now that we have tasted that the Lord is really good. Once you get a taste of the Lord and the gospel and we realize how much he's for us and not against us and so on and so forth, uh, there gets to be that place in our life where we can't get enough because God always has more for us. And uh, it comes to us through his word. And so now Peter goes on in our passage today. Uh, to describe who we are, in fact, becoming once we're born spiritually as Christians. And in this section, we learn about ourselves both individually as an individual and collectively together as a church, Uh, the the body of Christ, the people of God. And so uh, this morning, I'd invite you to think with me about how our lives are changed and transformed when this process of the pure spiritual milk actually begins to nurture us and we begin to grow in this salvation that God has so freely provided us. And so you realize in verse 4, it says, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, the living stone. And Peter's going to use an imagery here about God building something. And um, I think that uh, Peter might be hung up on the word stone because you remember when Jesus met Peter, Uh, Jesus said to Peter, hey, you know, your name's Simon, but from now on you're going to be Rocky. You're going to be Petros, and it means rock, and changed his whole name. And so Peter sort of picks up on this and has his antenna up whenever we read about this. And so uh, Jesus is the living stone, the living rock, the foundation upon which God uh, is building this new household, if you will, this family of his. And so all through this section, because Peter's audience is primarily Jewish, Peter quotes from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, rock was a symbol of this Christ, this Messiah that was coming. And so, like in verse 6, he says, um, 
He says, uh, uh, Scripture says, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, like we just sang. You know, the cornerstone, if you're building a building, the cornerstone lines up everything. Everything has to line up with the cornerstone, and that's how you set the building. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. And then uh, the, the, the next part of that verse says, you know, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Uh, when you line your life up with him, when he's your cornerstone, you know, and, um, and then he says uh, in verse 7, he says, you know, uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Uh, the capstone is the finishing stone. There's nothing else to add. The building is done. Once you put the capstone on, you saw the World Trade Center, 1,776 feet high, and the capstone went on this past week, right, of that building. And um, the, Jesus is the capstone of what God is building and so forth. And, uh, and not only that, but you'll notice in verse 8 that he's also the stone that causes people to trip up. He's the stumbling stone. And so um, all through this section, Peter is talking about Christ, and he's, in verse 7, he's the precious stone of God. He's the cornerstone, the capstone. He's also the stumbling stone. And uh, Peter quotes from the Old Testament, again, I think because, you know, this is his name, and he kind of picks up on this. And in verse 4, he says that um, this living stone or this rock, um, that's a symbol from the Old Testament of Christ. You might remember that as the uh, people of Israel wandered around in the desert in, in the wilderness before they came to the promised land. Uh, two times they ended up without water. They got really thirsty. There was no water. They're in the desert and uh, they start grumbling at Moses. You know, why did you ever take us away from Egypt? We're going to die of thirst out here and so on. And, and so the first time this happened, the Lord God spoke to Moses and he said to Moses, take your staff and strike the rock. You remember that? And water gushes out, and all the people and the animals, and they all drink to their content and fill up whatever they have to bring water with them. Fresh water just gushes out of that rock and so forth. And then uh, a little bit later on, you can read about that in Exodus 17, a little later on, uh, they run out of water again. And same thing, the people start grumbling at Moses, this is all your fault, and, you know, and, and, and get mad at him. And I think the people perhaps got to Moses because then God came to Moses, and God said to Moses, now speak to the rock. And Moses took his staff and he whacked it again. Remember that? And uh, the water gushed out, but God punished Moses. And Moses never went into the promised land. After all that Moses did and all this anticipation of getting to the end of the journey, going into the, leading the people, no, Moses, you're not doing that because I told you, speak to the rock. Don't hit it. And uh, I can remember thinking, you know, years ago, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that Moses blew a great illustration that God wanted all of us to understand that Jesus was the rock that was following the people through the desert. And he got struck the first time, but after he was crucified, you're to speak to him. And if you turn to um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, there's no mistaking about this. It says, he's talking about the people as they wandered around in the wilderness. Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He says, they all ate the same spiritual food. You remember that manna that came down from heaven so that they had something to eat. And they drank from the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. There's no mistaking about, you know, who the rock was or what the rock was all about. It was Christ. Uh, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now listen to this, verse 6. These things occurred as examples 
to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things like they did. This happened as an illustration for us. This was a setup by God through the Old Testament to prepare us to be able to understand who Jesus really is. He's the living rock. He was struck on the cross, but after that, he's to be spoken to. He doesn't need to be re-crucified again and again and again. It's pretty important to God. And uh, you can read about that whole incident in Numbers chapter 20. Jesus is the rock of the ages, and his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for all people for all time. And God wants us to understand that. But the point is, it's Jesus. He's the foundation rock. He's the living stone upon which God is building this new kingdom or this new household or this new family, if you will. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 says, No man can lay a foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You can't go build a church on some other foundation. You can't go make up some new idea about, you know, how to build a church off of, because God has set Christ as the foundation stone, uh, the living stone. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, when you go to build your own life, build it on the rock. Don't be like the foolish person who built their life on the sand. And then the storms came, and what? Their life fell apart, because they weren't built on anything solid. And the storms of life come. And if you're not built on the rock... Jesus says your life will fall apart because God is in the process of remaking us into this gold that he's setting us to be in heaven. So Jesus is this living stone. He's the source of water. He's the cornerstone. Uh, if you go to Matthew's gospel, when Jesus was here, uh, Jesus himself in um, Matthew chapter uh, 7, I think. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Matthew 21. Matthew 7 is later. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and Jesus said to the people, he said, have you never read your scriptures? He's talking to the Jewish people. The stone the builders rejected, the builders are the Israelites. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, and the cornerstone, and the stumbling stone, and the living stone, you know? And the Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus, you know, warns the people that, he is this capstone, but the people reject him. And you can read in Ephesians 2 the same imagery. But again, back in Peter, if we keep going in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we're going to notice that um, there are two options that you have with this stone. There are two options, um, verse 6 and verse 7. Notice what uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, verse 6 uh, says this. In Scripture, it says, I lay a stone in Zion. Um, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And I think in this context, perhaps in our day, we would understand that this is the, the new Jerusalem. The Bible talks about a new Jerusalem that's being prepared in heaven that in the end times will actually come down from heaven and sit over the city that we know as Jerusalem. And, uh, but Jesus was in Jerusalem, of course. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and a precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone becomes precious. This stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, 
The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that will make them fall. You have two options as to what you do with the person of Jesus Christ. And in verses 4, you see, uh, you can come to him. That's the first option. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. That's your first option. You can come to him. But you need to know that when you come to him, you become one with him. Notice, you become a living stone. When you come to him, his life gets inside of you, and like him, you become one of these living stones that's being built into this spiritual house that God is building. It's a great image here, a great imagery uh, that the Bible uses. We become a part of that house or that family that God is building. And you, you kind of have to get the picture here, right? You can't come to him and hold on to your independence. A two-by-four on its own is pretty useless. It has to be built into the building to become of any use. And when you come to him, his life gets in you, you become this living stone, and God builds you into this house that he's building, this household, this family that he's building. And until you get connected and play your part and allow that living spirit to work through you into the rest of the building, you can't stay off on your, on your own. You become a living stone. And... Uh, you're, you become a part of something bigger. Or you have another option. You can trip on this stone. You can stumble on this stone. You know, verses 7 and 8, to those who believe, the stone becomes precious, but to those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected becomes the capstone, and it becomes a stone that causes you to stumble or to fall. Jesus is just in your way. He just has things to say that you don't want to hear. And so you do your best to avoid him or ignore him or stay away from him or create a substitute or put other words in his mouth and so on and so forth. But from the beginning, Jesus was a rock of offense to the Jewish people. This was not the Messiah they wanted. And he was that rock of offense. And they fell. They stumbled. Uh, the Jewish people have been set aside. They were waiting for a Messiah, but this didn't seem to be the one they wanted. And um, someday they're going to recognize it. You know, the Old Testament talks about lots of things. Zechariah talks about, you know, there's coming a day when the Jewish people will see the one whom they pierced and weep and wail and repent and turn, and Israel will be saved, the Bible says. There's a future for Israel. But for the time being, they've been set aside. They rejected the living stone, the source of life uh, in the kingdom that God is building. And not just the Jewish people, but lots of people today, Jesus is a stumbling stone. He just gets in the way of the life that I want to live and the way that I want to do my life and so forth. And so please notice here now that um, the issue is your belief. The issue is whether or not you believe him. If you believe, Jesus becomes precious to you. Peter says. You might ask the question, what's precious to you? Sometimes people say, you know, if your house was on fire and you had an opportunity to run in and get one thing, what would it be? What's precious to you? And uh, anything that's uh, perishable 
will let you down. If the most precious thing in your life is from perishable seed, you're setting yourself up to be let down. When Christ is the rock upon which we build our lives and is precious to us, we realize, you know, sometimes I'll say to people, uh, you know, I'm an addict. I'm addicted to Christ. I cannot make my life work without Christ. He's just like the cornerstone. He's just, uh, I can't make my life work without him. I'm addicted to him. He's the substance that I need. He's the life that I need in order to keep going. He's the rock that we have to lean on, as we sang this morning, leaning on the everlasting arms. And, uh, you know, you can either trip and stumble over him or he becomes precious to you. And uh, if you don't believe, then Jesus will become your downfall. He'll become your undoing. That passage I read from um, Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus goes on where he first quotes in Matthew 21, he first quotes the Old Testament, and then he goes on, and and here's what Jesus says to the Jewish people. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you because you're stumbling over the living stone, the rock, the foundation upon which I'm building my kingdom. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, listen, who will produce fruit. Given to a people who will produce the fruit that is the reason why I'm sending, building my kingdom in the world. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. There's coming a day when the judgment of this living stone will crush the world. You can read about it in Revelation, right? And then, I love this verse, verse 45, it says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They knew it. He was talking about them. And then they looked for a way to arrest him, and they were afraid of the crowd, and they wanted to kill him, and so on and so forth. They knew. The Jewish people knew he was talking exactly about them. And so um, the issue, however, is belief. And here's the issue in belief. If we keep reading in verse 8, It says that Jesus becomes a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble, here it is, because they disobey the message. What's the issue of belief? It's obedience. You always obey what you really believe, always. You always act on what you really believe. If you say, well, I believe this, but do the opposite, what's that called in the Bible? Hypocrisy, right? It's, it's trying to act a part that you don't really believe. And so uh, I think this is a problem for, uh, you know, Christianity a lot that, you know, we're saved by faith alone, and that's the truth. But real faith always changes us. Whatever we really believe, we always act on. And so uh, when Jesus is in your life and you're, you say you believe him and so forth, but you, do, you don't obey the message that he communicates... Uh, it really means that I don't really believe that he's the Lord of the universe. I don't really believe that he's the living word of God because I'm not going to listen to him. And that's a huge issue. The issue is obedience to the message. We have a, if you just turn your Bible back a page or two, you know, we have this uh, men's Bible study going on on uh, Thursday morning. All you guys are invited, 6 o'clock. You can leave if you have to go earlier to work or whatever. But we're studying James. And a page or two back from where you are in Peter, Uh, James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but doesn't have any deeds? If he claims to have faith but it never shows up in the way that he lives, what good is it? 
is the question that James asked, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Can that kind of faith save you? And then he goes on, and he, he says, um, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and doesn't have any food, and, and one of you goes and says, you know, uh, go, I wish you well, keep warm, and be well fed, but does nothing to help the person, kind of the good Samaritan story. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not real faith. It's not, saving. It's not living faith. The living stone gets inside of us and makes us living stones. And if our faith is a dead faith, well, it won't have any effect. There's no life in us. You know, we make a profession, but we don't, you know, walk the talk and all of that. He says, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was, was not our ancestor Abraham, remember Abraham's the first person that God says was righteous by faith. And so James is using his, his, him as an example. Wasn't Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was showing up in his life. His faith, in his, his faith was at the core of his life and showed up in his actions. And they were working together, right? Um, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Sounds like a contradiction in the Bible. A lot of people point out that is a contradiction because Paul says we're saved by faith alone. And we are saved by faith alone, but faith, if it's real and it's alive, always transforms us, always changes us. Why? Because God has made us living stones that he's building into this household, this kingdom, this family that he's carving out of the world who will be with him for all of eternity. And it always changes us. And so Peter is saying the same thing. Uh, we're saved by faith alone, but real faith always changes us. It conforms us to the cornerstone. What does it mean to be built into the household of God? So again, back in 1 Peter chapter 2, um, here's what it means to be a living stone built into this spiritual house that God is building. Uh, it means that you and I uh, are a part of a holy priesthood. Priesthood, that's the next thing Peter says there in verse 4 or 5. He says, you, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, you know, I know I've talked about this before, but I wonder how seriously um, we take it that you and I are priests. Priests, that we have this role of priests. And, uh, you know, because, number one, we have direct access to God, and number two, we've been commissioned by this God to be an influence on his behalf to people. And that's a priest. A priest is somebody who stands between God and people. A priest is somebody who knows God and knows people and is on assignment in the world on behalf of God. And Peter says, you know, if you are a living stone being built into this house, you're a priest. And uh, we talk about it in terms of the priesthood of all believers. And so I think, you know, we have direct access to God. We've been commissioned to influence people on God's behalf. And I think, well, how do you do that? How do you go about fulfilling your obligation as a priest? Well, in the Old Testament, of course, you had blood sacrifices all the time. You had animal sacrifices. The priests in the temple, they were forever just slaughtering animals to cover people's sins. Well, that's over. Um, if you could imagine, how does this priesthood work? I would suggest to you that you think about God building a household or a family. 
And God is our Father, and Jesus is our big brother who pays the price and makes everything right and cleans up after us. And the Spirit of the living God is in each of us. And we're part of this household that, that God is building. And so imagine that kind of a family, and everybody in that family, while they're unique, everybody represents something from God that they're bringing into that family. And how do they do that? How do they do that? It's the same as in a, 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 a physical family, isn't it? Uh, are you ready for this? Here's, here's how you do this. It says in verse 5 that we become this priesthood, this holy priesthood, offering up spiritual, you ready for this word? Sacrifices. Has, have you figured it out that in order to have a family, you have to sacrifice? Right? In order to get along with your brothers and sisters and so forth. What's that about? Sacrifice. It's about being like Jesus who said, have the same attitude in you that's in me when I consider the next person more important than myself. If you get in a family where everybody thinks they're the most important person, what happens? It sort of blows apart. And uh, how is it that this priesthood works? Well, a priest is always making sacrifices, but they're not blood sacrifice, not animal sacrifice, not sacrifices for sins anymore. They're spiritual sacrifices. What's a spiritual sacrifice? What is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans um, chapter 12. You remember this when we studied Romans, I'm sure. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, Paul goes for 11 chapters teaching theology and comes to chapter 12 and says, therefore, on the basis of all that's true, what God has done on our behalf and so forth, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's great mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies to be used by God sacrificially for the next person. Love your neighbor as yourself. So offer your mouth to be a spokes tool of the living God and the word of God and this living stone who now you are. So you offer your mouth, you offer your hands and do good deeds. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. How is it that we act out this priesthood? Well, it's sacrificial. Like Christ, we consider the other person more important than ourselves. And when we do that, we begin to offer ourselves for the sake of the next person. Hebrews chapter 13 talks about the sacrifice of praise. Finding something to affirm in the next person, or especially the sacrifice of praising God, worship. Getting up early in the morning, you know, and coming and and, uh, being a part of worship and having a devotional life where we spend time in prayer. The sacrifice of praise. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 talks about doing good deeds and sharing because with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Philippians chapter 4 talks about the sacrifice of giving money. Romans chapter 15 talks about the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel and the sacrifice of people that we've led to the Lord. Probably the most special sacrifice that we can offer to God is the sacrifice that it takes on our part to share the gospel and be patient and loving and hang in there until somebody comes to Christ and then we're able to offer this person up to the Lord. That's a difficult sacrifice, right? And, uh, and so what does it mean to be a priest? And we are priests. We're either good or bad, but we're priests. We're cast in this role as living stones, as Christians, Peter says. Um, we're to be um, 
as a result of all of these things, we're to be, I think, not isolated from one another or isolated from the world. We're in the world, but not of it. We have to be in proximity to have influence on God's behalf. We have to not be afraid of the world or not be afraid to, you know, be uh, close to one another because God has poured into us something that he is using to build this structure called the kingdom of God, his household. And you are a priest. You have a direct access to God and you have a commission from God to be an influence in and out of his family from now until the day you die. You're a priest. And the way we act out our priesthood is through these spiritual sacrifice. And uh, I can tell you that if you do this, uh, you're going to get flack. <laughs> and God has some advice for us here. Verse 11 in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. And uh, some of you might have a Bible translation that, that translates that word strangers as a peculiar people. <laughs> and a lot of people think that Christians are somewhat peculiar. But he says, look, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You know you're wrong. Jesus is in your face. It becomes a stumbling block. Whatever it is that he's talking about you that he wants to change. Get rid of all of that and live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Can you imagine the day when Jesus returns? And you've got all these Christians that people have made fun of or told you you're an idiot for, you know, uh, living the life that you live and, and living a clean life and a sacrificial life and all this. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and all of those people, all of a sudden, are going to say, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and all of a sudden, those people will give glory to God and say, oh, I wished I'd have listened. And Peter says, get your sights on that day and be willing to take the hits and the shots along the way in order that on that day, the whole world might glorify God. A priest, sacrificial, living in anticipation of that great day that's coming. So I think that first part of Peter is all about who we're becoming as individual Christians. Now, in verses 9 and 10, it talks about who we are together, who we are as a church. And uh, Peter talks about us collectively and about uh, us together and these um, words in verses 9 and 10 almost parallel uh, words that God spoke to Israel back in the Old Testament. But you'll notice there are four things that were to be together. Four different components of our life together as a church. And uh, first of all, uh, Peter says um, that we collectively, the church, are a chosen people or a chosen race. The word is ethnos. And uh, just like Israel was the chosen race, the chosen people of God, this chosen race, but became disobedient and became rebellious and uh, has been set aside for the time, will return to prominence in the future. Uh, Israel has promises from God that are not yet fulfilled, but Israel was a race by blood. And still today, Israel is a race by blood, tracing back bloodlines uh, even today. But the church, by its new birth, shares in the bloodline of Christ. We become blood brothers and sisters because it's the blood of Christ that gives us our life, our spiritual life. And we become this um, chosen race, this ethnos of people all of a sudden, you know, who are to do what God originally intended Israel to do. 
uh, to sing his praises, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, this is who we are together, as Peter describes it. The church, by new birth, shares in the blood of Christ, and um, we become this chosen race to accomplish the purposes of God as he's building this household of faith. The second thing Peter says, um, notice, is that you're not just a priest, but you are a royal priesthood. And this is really interesting because in the Old Testament, no king could ever be a priest. One king tried it and got whacked, all right? But no priest, it's like the ultimate separation of church and state. The, the king and the priest were two different uh, groups and so forth, but you and I, we become a part of this royal priesthood because the Bible says someday you and I will reign in this world with Christ as king. When he comes back, we will come with him and reign in the world. And we will, wouldn't it be great? I mean, this is what's going to happen as I envision it. And you can argue with me and uh, think I'm wrong, but I think the political system of the world will become an extension of spiritual realities. Can you imagine a government that's simply an extension, an action lived out of what everybody believes, of, of the truth of God in the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes back? Imagine a government that's just an extension of God's truth. Wow. And uh, I think that's why we're called. So as we're not just a priesthood that's living today, but we live with a sense of expectation. The cool thing about being one of us, we have a future. We're, our future's not limited to just this world. We're not made of perishable seed, but imperishable. And there are things coming that God reveals and tells us that create this sense of anticipation within us and the sense of excitement, you know, as to what's coming. We are a royal priesthood. We're going to reign with Christ. And so we look forward to that. But I have to tell you, it's not yet. Ask Mike Huckleby. It's not yet. This kingdom that's coming is not now. A great deal of confusion in the Christian community comes when we take things that God says are in our future and we demand them now. And there's lots of confusion. And people take passages of scripture out of context and make claims. And then God doesn't show up in the ways that they think. And, and they blame God. You know, there's some things for now, and there's some things for then. And this royal priesthood is something that we anticipate in the future. The third thing Peter says we are together um, is a holy nation. And again, like Israel, holy means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be made for a purpose. And uh, we are a holy nation. We don't have any geographical boundaries. We're not a nation in the sense of geography. But the church, universal, is like a nation, like the nation of Israel, that's holy. It's been set aside for a purpose that God has us in. The, we're the salt and the light of the world. And Peter says this church is like this holy nation without boundaries. Uh, the church is in the world for God's purposes. In other words, we're on assignment. We're consecrated for his service. Uh, just like Israel was appointed uh, in this way. And then finally, the fourth... Uh, description that Peter gives of us is that, and this is great, it just says, you know, um, uh, verse uh, 9 there, he says that um, uh, we are a people belonging to God. If you're a living stone, if you've come to Christ and opted for that option, Jesus in Matthew 11 says, you know, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest and, and make some promises. If we come to him, uh, we end up belonging to God. Now, I think one of the greatest human needs that we all have is a sense of belonging. I call it the longing for belonging. 
And so we have clubs, we have gangs, we have clans, we have groups, we have families, uh, you name it. We have all kinds of ways for people to find some place where they belong, where they're accepted, where they fit in, where they're comfortable, where they relax. And God says, when you come to Christ, you belong with God. It's one of the best gifts of being a Christian, this longing for belonging. It seems to me that, you know, some people, um, especially people who I think experience significant rejection in their life, sometimes people who are real young go through a divorce or people, uh, you know, who are rejected by a spouse or get fired from a job or, you know, just something happens and they have this traumatic kind of sense of rejection, can spend the rest of their life trying to find a place to belong. And, and some people work real hard and they think if I work real hard, I'll be accepted. Some people try to impress other people by gaining power or status or money or muscles. Some people are promiscuous. Some people, you know, just keep going through friendships or through marriages or through uh, churches or jobs. And we're always looking for that where I can finally belong. And here comes God and says, listen, when you come to Christ, you'll belong to me. I'll be your father. And uh, what a great gift that is. And so we have this new identity from God. This is what we're becoming. We're all in the process of, you know, uh, becoming these, this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, these people who belong to God. Now, in closing, what for? Why is God calling us these things, giving us this identity, putting his spirit in it, allowing Christ to sacrifice for us and so forth? What's all this for, these great identities as a church? What's it for? Again, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of God. All right? The one who brought you out of darkness and into light. And I love this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you were nobody, but now you are somebody. You are the people of God. You know, uh, and, and he says, once you hadn't received mercy, but now you've received God's mercy through faith in Christ, the gift of grace and mercy and God's compassion and love, his forgiveness. It all comes to us when we come to Christ. Once you were nobody, but now you're somebody. Once you were just perishable, now you're imperishable. Once you were in the dark, now you're in the light. Now the living word of God has explained where you've come from, why you're here, where you're going after you die. Wow. What do you do with all that? Well, you tell people. What do you do with anything you're excited about? You always tell people. Whatever you get excited about is what you're going to talk about. And so the, Peter is saying, look, this is the job of the church, to declare the praises of this wonderful God. Because guess what? The world in which we live desperately needs a God like ours. There are people who are worshiping all kinds of gods, but we have the God who is the true God. And uh, this is a God who sees us in our temporary physical lives and says, I want to share my life, eternal life, with you. And found a way to do it in the person of Christ. And so God says, join me. Because all of the rest of the people in the world, he says, I so love the world that I gave my son that whosoever 
would believe me, might have this everlasting life that you already have. And so hold hands with me, join me, and declare the praises of this God who was way more for you than you could ever imagine. I love that little video of, you know, uh, that great big hand and that little guy, Joshua, right? On the forefinger of God, held in his hand. God is so much bigger than we think. You have been invited into his the household he's building with his living life. Jesus is either precious to you or you're tripping and falling over him all the time. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, again, we're, we're just uh, always thankful for your word, and we're thankful that it's a living word, that your word to us as we study is not just uh, you know, ink on a page, but that you breathe life into us through it, and our spiritual lives come alive, and we, we sense it. Something's going on that's different when we encounter your word than when we just read any other book. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for making us living stones with Jesus. Thank you for sharing your life, eternal life. Thank you for causing us to be born again, Uh, you know, with um, imperishable seed. Thank you for giving us a dimension to our life, Father, that will never end. And I pray that our focus increasingly would be on that spiritual life and that we would nurture it and feed it so like Peter says, we could grow up into this great salvation and that we would be a people, this church here in Fairfield County, that declares the praises of the God who brought us out of being nothing and caused us to be something, to be living stones in the household that you're building. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to ask our ushers if they would uh, wait on us this morning as we continue to worship through the giving of our tithes and our offerings this morning.